Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasilika, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. Thank you, Janelle, for an excellent review thus far. And with that, I'd like to reiterate her many valid teaching points that in practice, we should still be focusing on applying evidence-based care as recommended by the 2018 PADIS guidelines wherever possible when it comes to the management of pain, agitation, delirium, immobility, and sleep disruption in our ICUs. The many complications and challenges that COVID-19 has presented, first and foremost being an unknown disease process, to staffing issues with limited resources, including medications, ventilators, and PPE, to heavy workloads with census surges, and patient concerns with visitor restrictions and social distancing. All of these things have forced us to reconsider the ways in which we provide care. We'll transition now into reviewing suggested strategies to preserve existing medication supplies through stewardship and conservation, and discussing considerations for the selection of alternative drug therapies in the setting of severe shortages. We'll also discuss how we can break down the barriers that COVID-19 presents to routinely implementing best practices. Integrating rapid practice changes in our pharmacies, hospitals, and health systems is crucial to overcoming these challenges, and we can do so by optimizing pharmacy operations and incorporating informatics teams to maintain high-quality care. We must also embrace changes to our clinical roles and responsibilities in effort to best serve our patients, our colleagues, our communities, and ourselves throughout this pandemic. One such strategy to conserve existing medication supplies lies in inventory management of high-demand drugs, including opioids, sedatives, paralytics, and vasoactives, as well as COVID-19-specific approved and investigational treatments. Tracking the current use of high-demand medications provides necessary information to bedside clinicians as it relates to available agents, both conventional medications and alternatives, including specific products like premixed infusions versus vials requiring sterile compounding, as well as the concentrations and volumes on hand. All of this data aids clinical leaders in projecting future drug supply. Routinely sharing this information with key multidisciplinary stakeholders creates global awareness and provides guidance for clinical education opportunities or management algorithm development to ensure stewardship processes are in place. In the event of a severe shortage or stockout, it's also important to consider redeploying additional staff if it's possible to facilitate changes in drug orders that are already active on patient profiles when it's necessary as not to further burden an already overloaded clinical team. Conservation strategies specific to analgesic agents are included on this slide for your reference. Many of these Janelle discussed extensively, but it's worth repeating that employing a protocolized, patient-specific, multimodal, and algo-sedation regimen is best practice for both patient care and conservation of medication supplies. These strategies ensure appropriate agents and dosing are routinely utilized in patient-specific contexts. Ebola's first approach is another opioid sparing strategy that decreases cumulative exposure and minimizes oversedation while conserving shortage drugs. We'll also discuss the role of alternative routes of administration for analgesic agents, including enteral and transdermal, which may be an option for specific patients without pharmacokinetic contraindications. 
For our sedative agents, many similar conservation strategies apply, ensuring our patients are awake and alert when possible, targeting light sedation if possible, using the aforementioned analgesia-first and analgesia-based strategy. The multidisciplinary care team should assess and discuss sedation goals on a routine and consistent basis, and as the patient's clinical status changes, conducting at least daily awakenings and sedation vacations, and reinitiating sedative agents if warranted at reduced doses. As Janelle described, rotating medications is another strategy to avoid accumulation, and certain administration techniques, again, including a bolus-first approach, as well as consideration for priming uh, extension tubing with smaller vials instead of the larger bag, and otherwise optimizing the dispense quantities that we're using as well, can facilitate conservation of our conventional sedatives. When discussing the use of paralytics for any patient, it's important to revisit the base and algo sedation regimen and ensure we're optimizing before appropriately selecting patients for paralysis. As recommended by the Surviving Sepsis COVID-19 guidelines and as Janelle outlined, it's prudent to trial intermittent boluses of an intermediate-acting neuromuscular blocker before moving to an infusion. I'd also like to reiterate Janelle's point that the titration target is critical for both conservation efforts and patient outcomes. Titrating to ventilator synchrony and improved oxygenation is often sufficient, so it's important that the orders in place clearly state as such to facilitate appropriate bedside titration. It's also appropriate to routinely evaluate for paralytic holidays to limit total drug exposure by decreasing and holding continuous infusion neuromuscular blockade until vent dyssynchrony occurs and conserve stock by limiting durations to 48 hours, generally speaking. As previously mentioned, as I'm, and as I'm sure all of you here today are painfully aware, drug shortages are a major challenge associated with caring for our COVID-19 patients, especially those requiring mechanical ventilation. This graphic depicts the most relevant analgesic, sedative, and paralytic agents on shortage per ASHP or, or the FDA as of September 2020. Most, if not all of these, all remain on shortage now, well into November. Fentanyl, hydromorphone, dexmedetomidine, propofol, midazolam, many of these agents comprise the backbone of our PAD regimens, which reinforces the need to conserve whenever possible and requires us as clinical pharmacists to critically evaluate alternative agents as the COVID-19 pandemic rages on across the country. To reinforce the importance of a multimodal analgesia approach, I've included it first for consideration with alternative agents. Utilization of a multimodal strategy improves pain control and decreases opioid requirements, which may better enable us to serve as stewards of our first-line opioid agents in the setting of drug shortages. Acetaminophen, ketamine, and neuropathic medications are suggested by the 2018 PADIS guidelines to decrease pain intensity and opioid use in critically ill patients. Use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents is cautioned due to the risk of GI bleeding and renal injury, and intravenous lidocaine lacks quality evidence in this patient population. We're all familiar with acetaminophen, and Janelle provided a wonderful overview of ketamine, so I'd like to briefly review the neuropathic agents, including gabapentin and pregabalin, which exert their therapeutic effects through calcium channel modulation, and carbamazepine, acting as a sodium channel block inhibitor. Dosing for these agents are listed on the slide, but may require adjustments based on end organ function in this population. Carbamazepine has many drug interactions too, as well as the potential to cause hyponatremia and Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Painful neuropathies are prevalent in the ICU, so utilization of neuropathic agents may play an important adjunctive and conservative role in caring for these patients. Alternatives to our conventional intravenous opioids include the fentanyl analogs, remifentanyl, sufentanyl, and alfentanyl, which Janelle also reviewed in depth, but I've included for completeness in this section too. 
Dosing, kinetics, adverse effects, and other considerations for the fentanyl analogs are included in this table. In addition to Janelle's prior points, please note that sufentanyl is also available in a sublingual dosage form with bioavailability of approximately 50% and delayed onset comparatively. Again, these are very short-acting agents, so monitoring for withdrawal after discontinuation would be an important component of patient care. Again, these alternatives are later line therapies and not routinely necessary for conventional or contingency care profiles. Providing opioids enterally can assist with conserving intravenous supply and facilitate fluid stewardship in these patients, though this strategy should be limited to patients with adequate gastrointestinal motility and function. Conventional opioids, including oxycodone, hydromorphone, and morphine, are all available enterally as well to facilitate this approach, but I'd like to specifically focus on methadone as an alternative agent for a moment. There are both IV and PO dosage forms of methadone available, and dosing suggestions and onset of action are included above. Methadone has been studied in patients receiving long-term continuous fentanyl infusions greater than five days of duration, and in in utilizing enteral methadone at doses of 10 milligrams every six hours, the results indicated a reduction in the fentanyl infusion rates of 20% every 24 hours. Methadone can be similarly titrated to patient comfort and sedation goals, though less easily and less quickly than an intravenous infusion. Important safety issues are a concern with methadone's use, though, in terms of QT prolongation an already long half-life that could be prolonged further in the setting of end-organ dysfunction, and a mismatch in the duration of analgesic effects as compared to the drug's half-life. For these reasons, we'd suggest the use of methadone to be reserved as an adjunctive agent in contingency care scenarios. With other enteral opioids, again, their use will be limited to patients with a functional GI tract and can be used as a supplement to continuous infusion. Notably, controlled release products will be reserved to patients who are able to swallow and not able to be crushed for feeding tube administration. In terms of transdermal administration, given the availability of fentanyl patches, this strategy is not necessarily recommended for acute pain management. Therapeutic fentanyl blood concentrations are not achieved until 12 to 16 hours after patch placement, and pharmacokinetics uh, of absorption are not predictable in this patient population as they're altered by both body temperature and just the site that the patch is placed. In the setting of extreme shortages, transdermal fentanyl may be an option, though it should likely be reserved for non-opioid naive patients with an overlap of continuous fentanyl infusion required through the transition process to ensure adequate pain control. The role of barbiturates as alternative sedative agents should also be discussed. Pentobarbital is used primarily for refractory status epilepticus or medically induced coma, so sedation dosing is likely to be less than the doses utilized for those indications. It's very uncommonly utilized in practice and unfamiliar to most of our bedside clinicians in most circumstances. Phenobarbital, on the other hand, is more commonly used and may be an effective option for some patients in maintaining sedation and comfort as either a primary sedative or in weaning long-term sedation. Dosing and pharmacokinetic data are listed on the slide with other considerations. Of note, phenobarbital may be attractive for fluid-overloaded patients given the intermittent bolus dosing in the setting of a long half-life and duration of action. Drug interactions are a major concern, as well as respiratory depression. Phenobarbital is likely best utilized during contingency care scenarios, whereas pentobarbital should be reserved for crisis care. Clonidine's central nervous system activity through alpha-2 agonism has brought it onto the PAD scene as an adjunctive agent to enhance sedation regimens and or wean off dexmedetomidine. This table compares the profiles of dexmedetomidine and clonidine for your reference, with clonidine exhibiting a much longer half-life, less titratability, increased peripheral sites of action, and decreased alpha-2 selectivity comparatively. Clinically, this results in an increase in the hypotension potential of clonidine with the 
possibility of prolonged effects observed in the setting of renal dysfunction. Valproate is another alternative adjunctive agent used to enhance sedation regimens in some patients with agitation and or delirium. It's also available both in both IV and PO dosage forms with one-to-one conversions between the two. However, there are many drug interactions and adverse effects for which to be cautious. Uncommonly utilized alternative agents capable of producing deep sedation include the volatile gases. These inhaled drugs are most commonly utilized for general anesthesia in the patients undergoing surgical procedures. Extensive bedside equipment requirements, unfamiliarity of dosing and administration of these agents outside of the operative setting, and lack of data for long-term sedation greatly limit their utilization. As such, the volatile gases are likely reserved for crisis care scenarios in locations with appropriate designs to provide these therapies, likely an OR that's been converted to an ICU for an example. Janelle discussed initiation and dosing strategies for paralytic agents, so I'll briefly reinforce the recommendation to pursue intermittent bolus therapy first with an intermediate acting agent with a longer duration of action and repeating that bolus strategy as needed for improved vent synchrony and oxygenation prior to pursuing the continuous infusion. A crisis care alternative paralytic to the more commonplace agents that Janelle highlighted is pancuronium, which is a long-acting neuromuscular blocker. Bolus doses of pancuronium range from 0.01 to 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, with infusion dosing of 0.8 to 1.7 mics per kilo per minute. Its onset of action takes place within two to three minutes, with an extended half-life of 90 to 160 minutes, and duration of action around one to one and a half hours. I want to emphasize its adverse effects, particularly the vagolytic effects, resulting in increased release and decreased reuptake of catecholamine at the adrenergic nerve terminal, clinically appearing as increased heart rate and increased blood pressure. All of that said, we've put together this graphic of our recommendations for conventional or first-line care, followed by our contingency care considerations for second- and third-line agents, with suggestions for crisis care, only in extreme scenarios requiring fourth-line drugs, based on the information that we've both presented thus far. It's our hope that these strategies help each of you to practice stewardship of existing supplies, conserve medications on shortage, and select alternative therapies when necessary. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.